I hope you're praying as as your leadership is that uh, the curtains continue to be drawn back, that freedom in this place abound and that uh, a renewed and revived joy ever increase amidst our congregation. We're going to be in Ephesians 5, so go ahead and flip there. We are continuing, heading towards the home stretch of our manhood, womanhood, marriage series, a biblical perspective. And we've started in Genesis, and we are now in the New Testament, surveying some of the uh, predominant New Testament passages on the topic. So go ahead and grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under the seats in front of you. Feel free to use one of those. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we will be. See if you know who this guy is. His wife, one morning, sat at the breakfast table, staring at her husband, tears rolling down her face. And she said something like this, marriage, this marriage, it's not what you told me it was going to be. Uh, you sold me a bill of goods. In fact, I, I don't even know how to communicate to you how bad it actually is. This guy named Gary Smiley. This guy that writes all the Christian family counseling books, etc. Or how about this guy? He was an up-and-coming uh, star in his denomination, a, a large church pastor. His wife one day sat him down and uh, tears coming down her face. She... Uh, Explained to him that she was tired of being used to further his career at the expense of his family. She said, we don't even know who you are anymore. We don't we never see you. He went away for three days, fasting and praying, begging God to give him one more chance. It's Chuck Swindoll. He wrote all these books. And those are just a few that I have. Many of them on family in the home. Or how about the uh, Christian woman who got so angry at her marriage and her husband that she threw her rings off. They got stuck in the hardwood floor in a crack. Her husband and her had to get down with a fork and pry them out, trying to trying to argue through this deal, pry out her wedding rings from the floor. It was Edith Schaefer, wife of Francis Schaefer. Who is the guy who went to do a Christian seminar down in South Texas? I think it was sprung on his wife at the last minute because he had totally forgotten and overlooked it, that she had to do a seminar as well for the minister's wives. She got so mad. She said to him, if you ever do this to me again, I'm going to leave you out in the cold. Uh, they were there to do a, a seminar, a conference on marriage and family relationships Drove all the way home about six, seven hours back to North Texas. Didn't didn't speak a word. Mr. and Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Howard Hendricks. Famous for uh, promise keepers. Keynote speaker for promise keepers in the early days. Or who was the uh, seminary student whose wife found three hundred dollars in his sock drawer? Got so mad because they were broke as a joke. That. Uh. She thought he was hoarding money and uh, she called him on it and uh, he got he handled it pretty well, though. He handled it pretty well. He grabbed the money, threw the money down on the bed, shouted out to her. It was from me selling my pistol, his prized possession at a pawn shop 
for half of what it's worth because it's our one year anniversary, our stupid one year anniversary. And then punched the wall of the seminary apartment, leaving a hole that a seminary had to fix. Who was that guy? Right here. Right here. Quiet now. I won't tell your stories. I sat with a couple guys several weeks ago, uh, guys who I meet with on a regular basis at a Chick-fil-A. And I was telling them of a uh, more recent occasion where uh, uh, this guy right here had lost his cool. Uh, the victim this occasion was my uh, nightstand alarm clock. And uh, these guys, these two godly men, right, they sat in this Chick-fil-A with dumbfounded looks on their faces. They looked like two small children who'd been given chocolate cake for breakfast. Just kind of odd, excited, but didn't know, really know what to do with it. Do I, do I eat the cake? Am I not supposed to eat the cake? It's chocolate cake. Right? And they just looked at me like, that's a relief. Even though it's, it's terrible. It's a relief. I had to, uh, by the end of it, they got so excited in my sin, I had to, I had to rebuke them and, and remind them that this isn't, this isn't an encouragement that, that we're all just like this and we can continue being boneheads. No, we can't be like this. But do be encouraged that, that we all fall. We all, we all do, right, guys? Guys, we do. We all need help. Scripture would indicate that uh, the wife gets one primary command, and it's to be subject to her husband. Why is that? Well, it's because she's sinful and thus selfish. She's sinful and thus she's selfish. It is in her fallen, selfish na- uh, nature to rebel against her husband. The curse in Genesis says that her desire will be for her husband. That doesn't mean she's going to have the hots for him, right? Remember we looked at that in Genesis? It means that her desire will be to usurp his God-given authority in the home. And she has to overcome that. Husbands, we get one primary command in Scripture regarding our marriage. You know what it is? It's to love. It's to love. Why? Because that's our that's our shortfall. That's our struggle. That's our primary struggle against our sin. We're sinful and we're selfish. It's in our fallen and selfish nature to love ourselves above all others, including the wife God has given us. Uh, Susie Davies, I think her name is. She wrote a book. She's a pastor's wife, mind you. She wrote a book entitled How to Love Your Husband Without Losing Your Mind. I saw the title, heard a lady on the radio, and I said, i got to buy this for my wife. It just sounds like something she needs, right, especially for a pastor's wife. She said it this way. She said that the number one thing your husband needs from you is, guess what, respect. Respect. I'd say that's right on. Men spell love, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Men are much like children. We're much worse than the stereotype of women. We need constant affirmation. Ladies, you spell love a number of ways. Primarily, it's with kindness, gentleness, affection. By affection, guys, I don't mean groping, okay? When I slap my wife on the backside, uh, for some reason, she does not take that as affection. I don't really get it. Uh, But, you know, she tells me that doesn't communicate love to me. But ladies, you need a you need a husband who genuinely cares and takes interest in what what you care about, what you're interested in. Ephesians five, guys, helps us out. 
So today, the message is primarily geared to our guys, our husbands, our men. Although the passage starts out with, uh, with encouragement and challenge to each other. Ephesians 5, let's start in verse 21, because 21 always gets, always gets detached, attached, or sometimes detached from this, from this passage. But I think it fits. Sometimes it's been applied and misapplied. But let's start in verse 21 and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. There is a sense that we are both husband and wife subject to each other. Now, some people say that goes with the context of the previous passage. That's why it's probably separated in your scripture with another heading. But others say, no, we carry that 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 principle through into the next passage. And some would take it to an extreme and say, look, there is no submission on the wife's part. We're both to be subject to each other. But that's really a that's really a bad interpretation because it becomes clear that while there is a mutual submission, there is still a specific submission that the wife carries in relationship to her husband. It's just there. It's not inferiority, but it's still a different role that she plays. But there is a sense, and I like it in the context of this next passage. We can't lose it because there is a sense, and we're going to see, guys, that we have a role of submission. We have a great role of submission in the home, and you're going to see that. Verse 22, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And I think Paul's just kind of reminding the wives about this. It's really not the emphasis of the text, I don't think. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, right? We've already said that. Paul's already said it in other passages. He's likely already said it to the Ephesians. I think he's just reminding them, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself, that's Christ, being the savior of the body. And he uses the word body there specifically as a picture of of the church. He equates the church with a body. And we're going to see that principle carried through here. Verse 24, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Verse 25, and now he turns, I think, what is his primary attention for the passage to the husbands? And I think rightfully so. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ in the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And then we get the reminder once again, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. It's obvious to me that the primary intention here is that Paul is addressing the men. What is this love that we are commanded to show towards our wives? What is this love? What does it look like? How does it work itself out? Uh, I'm going to give it to you in, in, in three categories. Number one, it is a sacrificial love. Number one, it's a sacrificial love. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the main point, and he... He explains it with the rest of the passage. Husbands, 
love your wives. They submit. They honor. They play their part. We have a part to play as well. We love our wives. But we don't just love our wives any which way we would like to. He qualifies our love. And he says that our love is a sacrificial love. Because he says our love should be just like Christ's love for the church. And then he unpacks that further at the end of the verse. What does he say? What is Christ's love like for the church? Well, Christ for the church gave up himself, literally, for her. So that's what Christ did. We have this we have this great parallel in this passage. We're going to see Christ in the church and their relationship. And then Paul's going to apply that to how now husbands and their wives relate. We see this parallel all throughout Scripture that Christ is the is the husband and the church is the bride, the wife. Right. So it's no stranger to us here. This this idea of Christ loving the church as a husband is to love her wife. But Christ's love, number one, is sacrificial. Now, let me make a couple points here about sacrificial love so that you can you can really wrap your heads around this. Man. Sacrificial love, when we look at Christ, and he is the model here in all these categories. Sacrificial love has nothing to do with whether it is deserved or not. Sacrificial love has nothing to do with whether it is deserved or not. There wasn't a soul on the earth that deserved what Christ did for them. Right. When our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundational world, when God, by his sovereign love, placed us in the in the body of Christ. And when we were chosen to be his children, it wasn't because we were so deserving. Sacrificial love is undeserved. God is not rescuing people who deserve to be rescued. He is saving those who don't deserve it because it is his nature It is in his nature to love. It's not dependent on us. John MacArthur said it this way. An inferior love gives only to those who earn the right to receive it. You catch that? An inferior love, that's us. That's our love, not God's love. We're down here. An inferior love, the way we tend to love men, because we're the ones trying to learn how to love here. An inferior love gives only to those who earn the right to receive it. But God's love is given to those who don't have the ability even to earn it. There's a big difference. We love with an object-oriented love, don't we? It's dependent on the other person, how much we love. So if the object is desirable, if the object is pretty, if the object is, is nice and kind, then, then we say, well, I love you. God's love is different. God doesn't expect the object to be worthy at all. It is simply in his own nature to love no matter what the object does or looks like. So when Paul says in Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives, he's not saying love her because she deserves it. And this is huge, guys, because we tend to give love when we feel like she deserves our love. We tend to improve. We tend to try and do better if she's trying to do better. I'll talk more about that in a moment. What he's saying here is love her even if she doesn't deserve it. Now, that's a high calling, but that's exactly the love of Christ. That's his sacrificial love that while we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave 
There was no change on our part before he gave. It's the father's love. Paul's saying love her enough to die for her, whether she's worth dying for or not. Uh, by the way, man, the idea of the idea that Christ gave himself up. Isn't simply a reference to him dying for the church. You see that? It's not just a reference when it says that Christ gave himself up, that he died, the, the, the act of the cross alone. It's more than that. In fact, the same phrase is used in verse 2 of Ephesians 5. Look at it. When talking about just how to get along in the church and in the world in general. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. He's again our model. Christ is always our model. Verse 2. And what do we do? We walk in love. We walk in love. That's a daily activity. That's not a one-time death. We walk in love. Now, look at what it says that looks like. Just as Christ also loved you. How did Christ love us? Well, he must have walked in love. How did he walk in love? He gave himself up for us. It's the same phrase as an offering, as a sacrifice to God, as a fragrant aroma. Our love for our wives is to be really a living sacrifice, guys, as much as it is that one time I'll take a bullet for you, love. The fact that Christ gave himself up for the church It's not just that he died for her, but he lived for her to his death. That means that being a good husband isn't as much about taking the bullet. Because there's a slim chance that you might ever have to do that. So it's, it's, you know, it's easy to say, right? Uh, Take a bullet for you, babe. But living sacrificially day in and day out is really the idea. It's really the idea. Uh, and in fact, our wives probably get tired of us living with the attitude that we would die for them. And many of them, mine included, would, would probably love to say, I wish you'd just live a little for me. Not be willing to die. Uh, you know why we have no problem being led by the Father, God, and by Christ? You know why, have, why we have no problem being led by the hand of God, it's because it has a nail in it. We got no problem following that kind of God. We have no problem submitting to that kind of God. To submit to that kind of God makes perfect sense. Men, wives have no problem being led by a dead man. You tracking me? Sounds a little odd, ladies, I know. But listen, guys, our wives have no problem being led by a loving, sacrificial, loving, dead man, day in and day out. Now, that's easy. It makes sense. It makes sense. Christ's position came from his activity, right? He got to be head in relation to the church because he was, in fact, Savior. His life and his death proved it. Not just his death, but his life to his death, proved it. So sacrificial love is unconditional. We've we got we to understand that. It's, it's about being a living sacrifice. And it's easy, it's easy to submit to. There's another kind of love here. Look at verse 26. Paul goes on to say it's not just a sacrificial love, but there is a, a sort of purifying love. 
Verse 26 says, so that he might sanctify her. And again, we're talking about Christ in the church. That's our model. That's our example. So that Christ might sanctify her. Who's her? That's the body of Christ. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. There is a purifying type love that we ought to have towards our wives, gentlemen. Now, we could get bogged down right here. The Bible says that Christ has forgiven all our trespasses. Colossians 2:13. The moment that you opened your heart and invited Christ in, he cleansed you so absolutely that though your sins, you know this verse, though your sins be as scarlet, they be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool, Isaiah says. He has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west and then cast them into the depths of the sea, Micah says. He says, I will remember your sin no more in Jeremiah. When you were saved, he made you absolutely pure so that you can enter into the presence of God covered by his righteousness, completely, totally cleansed. No spot, no blemish, no wrinkle that dirt hides in. That was the heart of Christ in his giving himself up. His sacrificial love was a purifying love. His heart was for the body. His heart was for the bride. That she benefits in that relationship. And that was a cleansing once for all. There's also the idea in Scripture, First uh, John 1 9 is one of those passages, that Christ continues daily to cleanse his children. He says to John that uh, you have no need of being cleansed again except for your feet. In, in that culture, you would. You would cleanse yourself and you would go out in your sandals in a desert country and, and your feet would still get dirty. And so you would continually wash your feet throughout the day before you go into someone's house. They would usually have a servant there to wash your feet. That sort of daily thing needed to continue to happen. There is a sense in Scripture where our sins have been completely washed away. And yet there is a daily, a daily cleansing that Christ does in us. A daily sanctification, if you will. Now, uh, I think that's right. I think that's I think that's there in this passage. But lest we get bogged down too much into trying to figure out that depth of the passage, I, I like the more plain understanding of those verses. And here's what I think it means. Our love is not just sacrificial in nature, but purifying in that it seeks very simply. It seeks the best interests of the one we love. It seeks the best interest. That's a lofty enough challenge all on its own. Right, guys? That in our sacrificial love for our spouse, it's also purifying in that that we we long to see her cleansed, improved, daily achieving that which her heart desires. God doing in her what only he can do. And we help. And so, again, our heart is not just for our own growth, our own selfishness, our own improvement. But it's it's that she grow, improve, be daily cleansed in the washing of the word, incidentally. Christ did what he did for our benefit, right? Christ did this for us so he could present the church with no spot, no wrinkle. So there is a sacrificial element we got to learn. There's a purifying element of Christ's love that we must learn. 
There's also a caring element to Christ's love. Don't worry, guys. Although we purify in our relationship, there is some benefit to us. Watch what this says here in 28 to 30. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Again, we get the model of Christ in the church. And the point here is that Christ and the church are unified. They are, in fact, very much one. And they are one body. And as Christ is the head, not just, not just the leader head, but he is quite literally the head. He, he is the, the initiating portion of the body. We are the members of the body. You see what that last verse said in 30? For we are the very members of Christ's body. Now, we don't use that word members very much anymore. The only guy that would use it would be Vic, who's, uh, you know, the head of homicide unit, right? That's the only time we hear that. Is that so-and-so, you know, was found dismembered, right? I'm sorry to paint that, you know, grim of a picture. That's the only time we use the word members as it's used here in contemporary society. What members means is we are the hands, we are the feet of the body of Christ. He is the head. We are the hands, the feet, the mouthpiece, etc. We are actual parts of his body. So when he calls us the body of Christ, some of us are different parts of that body. We're gifted to be different parts, but we're all useful. And the, the, the parallel here is look at Christ and look at the church. They're actually one. And Christ treats her, the church, the bride, like she is part of him because she is, in fact, part of him. We, the church, plural, us as individuals, we collectively make up the body parts with Christ being the head. All right. So now that's the model. That's the model. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because he because we are members of his body. Look at verse 31 for this reason. And this is a quote, isn't it? It should be offset in your Bible, maybe in all caps. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one what? Flesh. Is this Paul's idea? Is this a novel idea? Is Paul making this up? No, it's a direct quote from where? Genesis 2. The creation. God put Adam to sleep, took a rib out of Adam. This, is this coming together for you? He took a rib out of Adam, formed woman. Adam wakes up and we get... We get Adam spitting poetry for the first time in all of history. This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. I shall call her Isha because she is from Ish. I shall call her woman because she's from man. So Adam wakes up and he's he's astounded. He's amazed at what God has done. And when man and woman come together in Genesis, it says that the two will be joined together by God, mind you. And they become, they become what they once were in a sense. They become reunified in that way. Not just sexually, but there is, there is something there happening. Some mystery that happens between husband and wife that actually makes them, in God's eyes, to be one. Now, he says to the men, we've got to act like that. That's the point. Just as Christ and his body, the church, are one, and he treats them like they're part of his body... 
How did he do that? He lived and died for them. Ephesians says this in 419. But my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Not just some of them, not just most of them. He cares for his body, right? It just makes sense that Christ would care for his body. If he lives and dies for it, he's going to care for it. Paul then turns to the, to the husband and says, it just makes sense that you would care for your wife because whether you've known it or not, all the way back to Genesis, God has designed this thing so that you understand she's actually part of you. And I've got to tell you, I spent the majority of uh, the last two weeks meditating on that idea more than any other part of this. And there are a lot of things to meditate on, but I could not get away from this. Kimberly uh, has had some headaches lately and she's not felt well the last couple of weeks at different times. And this passage, just, God just kept hitting me like with a two by four with this passage saying, listen, um, don't, don't be like your nature would incline you to be. My nature would incline me to be, okay, honey, you know, yeah, what, what's going on with you and, and, you know, try and listen and be sympathetic, etc. That's hard for me. That's a that's a that's a real weakness of mine. Um, but I, this passage kept coming to mind. I'm saying, God, what does this mean? What does this mean that I ought to love my wife as I do my own body? And it sounds simple, but man, I challenge you, if there's anywhere in this passage you're going to meditate this week, stick stick on this one. And you're not going to be able to get away from it. I started thinking, you know, when my wife, you know, when she has a headache or whatever's going on physically or she's had a hard day or whatever it is, I started asking myself, am I am I absorbing that? And am I responding to her just as if it were me having those issues? Or am I responding to her like she's this whole separate entity dealing with it on her own? And that's the truth. That's that's the majority of how I spend my marriage. And God's saying, listen, in some strange, mysterious way, I've designed you and I've designed this relationship that you need to live and think and love your wife in such a caring way that you begin to you begin to sense and feel and absorb and respond to her and those issues as if it were you. That's weird, man. (laughs) It's 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 honestly transforming. Because when it's me, it's about me. It's, I'm selfish when it's me. When I have a headache, it, it changes the day. When I have an issue, it, it alters my attitude. When she does, yeah, okay, honey. And then I go about my business. And I try and be sympathetic and I try and help her along. And then I go about my business. And God's just saying, listen, you can't go on. You have to act as if that's actually you. You have that headache. Those are your issues. And that's, that's transforming. Guys, again, we love like that. Her part will come naturally. Spend some time thinking about how you treat your wife. Excuse me. Spend some time about how your treatment of your wife would change if you were as selfish in caring for her as you are in caring for yourself. Catch that last part? Spend some time thinking about how your treatment of your wife would change if you were as selfish in caring for her as you are in caring for yourself. And that changes everything. That's the heart of Christ for the church, for us, the bride. We, we have that challenge as well.
Several years ago, the Saturday Evening Post published an article entitled The Seven Ages of the Married Cold. You know, like a (coughs) a cold. Seven Ages of the Married Cold. It revealed the reaction of a husband to his wife's colds during the first seven years of marriage. Pretty interesting. One something like this. Check it out. Year one. Sugar Dumplin', I'm really worried about my baby girl, and you got a bad sniffle there, and there's no telling about these things with all this strep throat going around. I'm putting you in the hospital this afternoon for a general checkup and a good rest. I know the food's lousy, honey. I'll be bringing you meals from your favorite restaurant the whole time. I've already got it all arranged with the floor superintendent. Year one. Year two, it says this. Listen, darling, I I don't like the sound of that coffin. I called Dr. Miller and asked him to rush over here. Now, you go to bed like a good girl. Please do it just for just for your hubby. Not bad. Year three. Maybe you better lie down, honey. No, nothing like a little rest when you feel lousy. I, I'll bring you something to eat. We got any, any canned soup in the, in the cabinet? Year four. Now, look, dear, be sensible. After you fed the kids, washed the dishes and finished the floor, you better lie down. That's year four. Year five. Why don't you take a couple aspirin or something? Changing a bit, isn't it? Year six. I wish you'd gargle. This is one of my favorites. I wish you'd gargle or something instead of sitting around all evening over there cackling and barking like a seal. <laughs> Year seven. For Pete's sake, stop sneezing and coughing. Are you trying to give me pneumonia? That's the most like us. You know, I was thinking about about that idea that that we are loved like Christ loved the church. We're loved like our like they're our own bodies. And the truth is, the truth is that at first I, I wondered about that because most of us don't take care of our own bodies anyway, even though they're a temple of the Lord. And that's the that's the that's the premise. That's the basic idea. Most of us don't take care of our bodies as well. And in fact, there there is a parallel, I think. That the longer we go, the older we get, you know, we hit our 30s, we hit our 40s, right, Radley? That we just, we start to become couch potatoes, right? And there's less gym time, there's less exercise time, right? And uh, we don't love our, our own flesh like we used to, right? We kind of get out of the habit. We get lazy. It's the same thing in marriage, isn't it? The longer the time goes on, we don't put the amount of investment in it. We get lazy, You know, when we were dating, we put our best foot forward. Guys, you actually shaved, you took a shower, you put on deodorant, maybe some smell good stuff. And, uh, you know, your socks matched. You ironed your shirt for the one time. Uh, You did some of those things to to give the appearance that you were worthy of marriage, perhaps. Right. That's how it is in the beginning. After a while, I just uh, I don't care. Whatever socks are in there, you smell them and they're they're good to go. Right. You don't take a shower necessarily. You might just put on some deodorant. And we lose a little bit of that. The basic premise holds, however, that none of us, none of us hates our own body. When it starts to go wrong, when it starts to get sick, etc., we get extremely selfish. We are deeply concerned with ourselves when illness strikes, when hardship comes. Guys, I don't know about you, but... What a challenge that we start to see our spouse as not this separate entity, but she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's Isha from Ish. She's part of me. Man, I fail 
I, I fell miserably. My wife probably is ready to stand up and you know, shout amen and call me off the pulpit. All right, so let me, let me finish. Let me, let me leave you guys with a word of encouragement and a word of challenge. The challenge first. Uh, Kimberly and I realized, oh, about year 10 of our 11 years, that, uh, and that's not good, that our individual role was much easier when the other was doing their part. You know what I mean? My role was easier when she was fulfilling her part. And we started to realize that I was holding out on my end of the bargain, what God had commanded me to do, until she did what God had called her to do. And vice versa, she would begin holding out on what God had called her to do because I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. And we realized, hey, this is sort of a vicious, silly chicken and egg cycle going on here. Who's actually going to who's actually going to do their thing first? Am I, am I to respect and be subject and, and, and recognize that headship or are you to love first? And this is the challenge portion. Let me just put that to rest. Sorry, guys. It seems to me that the principle of Scripture is that we lead out of love. It seems evident because that's what Christ did. The submission of the body of Christ didn't come first. The love of God displayed before all humanity on a cross, taking nails, living sacrificially, loving with a purifying love for our benefit, for our betterment. Living in such a way that expressed a care as if it was his own body towards us. That, that came first. That's the model. Gentlemen, we, we have a role to play. And, and as part of our role... We are called to be like Christ. We are not Christ, mind you. There's nothing about this passage that says we get to play Christ in the relationship. She has a God. We don't fit into that category. But it does say that our love should look a whole lot like His. Now let me give you the encouragement. Uh, I, I think, and I'm, I'm walking on... Thin ice here to speak for the ladies, but I think um, in learning from my wife and being in counseling settings for some time now, um, that wives are pretty resilient. Guys, they're pretty resilient creatures. They don't need you to be perfect. You might feel like they do. But the truth is, they don't need us to be perfect. They can tolerate our imperfections. They can tolerate our imperfections. What they cannot tolerate, however, okay? What they cannot tolerate, however, is our lack of desire to grow or change. A man who shows no sign of growing spiritually or moving forward or trying to improve, a man who shows no desire to, to respond to his wife when she expresses that somehow this thing in our marriage isn't working correctly, the guy who blows that off, that can't be tolerated. But wives are extremely resilient when a husband says and recognizes, I, I understand that my calling is to love like Christ, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try as hard as I can. 
and I'm going to receive, I'm going to receive from you uh, the needs and the issues, and I'm going, to, I'm going to attempt with all I have to live sacrificially, and I'm going to fail, and I'm going to be selfish from time to time. But if she knows his heart is, is, is bent towards sacrifice, she can tolerate a whole lot, guys. She can tolerate a whole lot. So my encouragement is to ask yourself here this morning, where, where is your heart? Where is your heart in that? Ask yourself, is your marriage, is your headship marked by a sacrificial love? Is it marked by a purifying love and a caring love? If it is, if it is, and you're not Christ, you're not perfect, but if those things are evident and increasing in your marriage, all right, if they're evident and increasing in your marriage, she will have no, no struggle against her role as if she would if you just cast aside your primary responsibility to initiate like Christ in love. Yeah. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you're always our model. Thank you that you always uh, are the one we are to imitate. Lord, in the coming weeks, we're going we're gonna to talk more about what Paul alluded to at the end of this chapter, that this mystery, this mysterious thing that he is unveiling, the correlation between the church and Christ and, and, and how it parallels Husbands and wives in marriage. Father, we're going we're gonna to talk further about that. Lord, would you prepare our hearts? Lord, specifically this morning, would you, would you call some men to the cross? Might they take up their cross within their homes, within their marriages? Lord, none of us are perfect. I think it was Spurgeon who said, if this congregation knew about me, what you know about me, they would never let me on this stage or behind this pulpit again Lord if I knew about those here in this congregation what you know about them we might not let them in again but but Father all of us included need you thank you that you were gracious to us that your love was not based on on our goodness but it is rooted in your nature thank you that you loved us Uh, Lord that you loved us first and most. Help husbands. Help husbands to find the way that they are to love first and most in this chicken and egg relationship where our flesh is selfish and says, we want love bestowed upon us and then we will bestow love. Lord, Lord, help us as men to take up our role, to see that no matter what, we are to step out first. Just as Christ just as Christ humbled himself, fought at night robbery. Lord, in that he let go of his equality with you and humbled himself, came to this earth, was tortured and crucified, and then buried in the ground, Father. Lord, if that is our path, if that's what you've called these men to, would you give us the strength? 
And would you empower us knowing that you have walked that path before us? Might your love trickle down into the hearts of these men. Make us better men. Make us better husbands. In doing so, strengthen this church. In doing so, make our light brighter to the world. That our homes would not disqualify the message in our neighborhoods, on the ball field, etc. That they would look at our marriages and, and find no fault. Find no reproach. That our lives, specifically in our homes, specifically between husbands and wives, would declare the handiwork of our God. For you've created this marriage. And that's our prayer. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You may want to use the altar. I encourage you. Uh, you may just want to stay seated. All the rest of us stand. Uh, if you feel like using the altar, please do. If you want to, if you want to kneel uh, where you are, please do. Uh, why don't you just listen to the prompting of God? And to the, to the one who may be hearing everything I'm saying about husbands and wives and say, if that's, if that's the parallel, if there is a God that loves in that way, sacrificially, in a purifying, caring way, And I've not known that God before. I've not known that Father before. I've not known that that's the God of the Bible before. If that's you, and you've yet to embrace that that God came and first loved us and loved us most, if the Spirit is urging you to respond to that, I pray you would do so. Find myself, Preston, one of our elders. Don't leave this place without responding to that example of grace and love and mercy. It's the most important decision you can make. The rest of us will pray.